Welcome, travelers. I'm Josh. I'm Glenn. And I'm Lee Wanika. This is Tabletop Journeys, where we will be your humble guides along the journey to RPG adventures. We are all D&D role players and storytellers at heart. It's where we started out, and it's where we find ourselves most at home. So here in our main podcast episodes, we discuss the core rules, how to use them as written, and how to homebrew your own content to get the most out of your story. Because detailed settings, heroic characters, vibrant NPCs, and a focus on story over rules is what makes a campaign legendary. Welcome, everybody, to today's episode. With the release of the new Ravenloft book, we wanted to hop into it this week to talk about some of the great content that is in this book. And we're going to get into that in more detail in just a minute. But before we get into sort of the meat of the episode, we did want to go ahead and make sure that all of our listeners are aware of a really big announcement. Uh, this is something that we had talked about in our What's Coming Up in uh, 2021 with Tabletop Journeys episode way back in January. Uh, but we have started releasing Tabletop Journeys original content on DMs Guild. Uh, if you go directly to www.ttjourneys.com slash DMs Guild, uh, you will get a link to our first page, uh, which is all based in the Gothic origins that were originally in the Unearthed Arcana a couple of months ago uh, and are now heavily featured in the character creation section of the new Ravenloft book. So uh, we have a bunch of uh, content up there. We would love uh, if everybody listening to the episode right now would go and check it out, download it, see what you like about it, leave us a review. We would love that. Been a bunch of people going in there checking it out, which is fantastic. I'm going to give a brief overview of kind of the uh, the content that's in there for if, uh, if you're interested. And if you want more detail on that, please make sure to check out uh, what was episode 10, which feels insane that it was that long ago, first of all. But episode 10 uh, was our episode where we talked about the Gothic lineage's Unearthed Arcana and went into detail about these characters. Um, so the character that I put up there uh, is a reborn rogue assassin uh, known only as the Scar, who is uh, a fantastic character, really. Uh, it is uh, one of these kind of true neutral sort of assassins, you know, uh, assassin from beyond the grave that serves to the greater, uh, the, you know, the whoever will pay him the most coin to go ahead and, uh, and dispatch the enemies uh, that they're looking for. Um, a lot of fun to write, a lot of fun to play, uh, and you can get, um, with all these characters, you can get their character sheets through Tier 4, um, as well as uh, an NPC stat block uh, to help uh, run your game as either a pre-gen character or uh, an NPC. So, Liwanika, uh, why don't you tell us about the character that you've got? My character, Bron Van Alec, is a ranger, a swarm keeper. He's a dark imposing figure who handles himself in various ways, but most importantly, he is a Dom Fear. I have had a great deal of experience with Dom Fear. I love them. I think there's something really awesome about a hero teetering on the edge of losing himself. I'm not talking your typical anti-hero, but I'm talking about a hero who may not be able to maintain himself. And I think there's something about domains of dread and the dark lords and the mists that just call out for this type of character. There's a lot more I could go into, but I want people to go out there, experience the character, use them in the, in their games, play them in as a pre-gen character, and then take this character in their own ways. But uh, the beauty of what we've done here is each of us have taken some time to not only write some backstory, involve the backgrounds, 
but we've also taken the time to place these characters at various stages in their life. Little details, such as changing of their appearance as they age, I think is just one of those things that really calls out for Ravenloft. So you can see the mists and the, 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 the dread just wear on this character's soul. He's another great character. Glenn, why don't you tell us about yours? So I created a Hexblood. And in the end, the name she goes by is Desdemona. Uh, but Desdemona's is a tragic tale, uh, and she is definitely not a hero. Desdemona is very much a villain. But she was born Agnes Drake South, daughter of a noble house, to Hendrik and Lillian Drake South. The downside is, though, that Desdemona was cursed before she was ever even conceived, because her family made their fortune by striking a deal with a hag named Auntie Mural. Her parents never really thought anything of it until their daughter was born with an Elder Cross crown extending from her temples. And then to hide their shame in the deal and fear of it ever being discovered, they raised her in secret. An anti-mural began visiting her in this strange estate in the woods and influencing her. That's what led her down the path to the Bardic College of Whispers to become a spy, a gatherer of information for the hags. By this point, anti-mural has joined a coven. And as Desdemona continues to, and Desdemona is the name she crafts for herself as her uh, stage persona, and she drops her, her old life completely. She does still tell her own tragic tale, but with different names and never actually alluding to the fact that it's her, because uh, she really specializes in that comic satire. But now with world fame, but not to the point where, you know, she detracts too much attention, the hags offer her more power, and she becomes a hexblood. And with the addition of their magic, she truly becomes a force to be reckoned with. Coming by day, a beautiful but tragic bard who tells beautiful tales, sings beautiful songs, and has a raven that is its con her constant companion. But by night, she is the wraith, a hexblood, stalking the halls of the places she's been invited, lifting their secrets from behind with her imp Zikafrit by her side. I love that. Uh, I love that you gave her an imp. I think that that's a fantastic twist. Uh, and so, anybody out there listening, uh, if you want to use any of these characters uh, in, uh, if you're planning Ravenloft games and need NPCs or pre-generated characters, go to DM's Guild, look up Tabletop Journeys uh, as the author, and you will see the offerings that we've got there. We hope you check them out. We hope you enjoy them. So, tonight we are going to talk first about the very beginning of the book. Players, these chapters are really for you. They're talking about how to build your character and how to get into the feeling and the game of Ravenloft. There's a lot of things about kind of uh, uh, how, how the feeling of Ravenloft is going to be for you as a player. The next episode that we're going to cover is going to be probably more for storytellers. It's going to get into chapter two and chapter four, which are kind of your structural how to build a Ravenloft campaign type elements uh, that are going to go ahead and help you as a storyteller build the thing that the players are reading about in chapter one. And then our final episode, we're going to do a couple things. We're going to do a super deep dive into chapter three, which is the one that specifies like the like 15 of the demi planes of dread that are the, the realms of Ravenloft that are available and give you rules on creating your own and talk about a bunch of the people that travel in between the realms and everything like that. Um, and we're also going to talk about chapter five, which is that disgusting chapter chapter about monsters in Ravenloft. Um, so we're really excited to be breaking this out here. We know that there's going to be a lot of content, but really the book is worth it. It is fantastic. And we hope that you enjoy uh, the episodes as we come along here. So let's go ahead and get started. So when we first started talking about when Candlekeep was coming out and how it was going to be a book featuring mystery type quests and everything like that, what we really hoped was that there would be, aside from just the mysteries themselves, that there would be a big chapter about how to run generically mystery-type quests at your table. And that was one of our big points of contention, I think, with the book, is that the mysteries are great, and they're fabulous, and they're well-written, and the authors that wrote them really knew what they were doing, and they, and they knew how to write a mystery. What it did not have was that chapter about, okay, now that you've read through all these, here's how you do this in your game. That is an oversight that they have corrected in spades 
in the Ravenloft book because they spend a lot of time talking about how to run horror-type mysteries, horror-type games at your table, and how to play in horror-type games at a table that you're playing at. And I really, I, I don't think that the need for this chapter can be underscored enough. I really think it is a fabulous addition to this book and really necessary uh, to bring people into what Ravenloft can and should be. I would absolutely concur with that statement. To echo Josh, it was what Candlekeep sorely needed. Uh, there's also a little bit more of that in chapter four where it just gives us the things we need to get it right. I mentioned when we did our preview, I have been rubbish at running true horror because I didn't feel I had anything that was giving me the techniques. I truly feel I spent a lot of time reading this book front to back, cover to cover, in order as the pages were written. And I can tell you, I don't usually do that with game products. I usually look at the table of contents, move to the section I want to read first, read that, and eventually get to other things. This book read beautifully, just read beautifully, and truly feel that the way the chapters flow build upon what was said previously in a way that this was more of a mini novel than just a game product. And that's, in my opinion, high praise because that doesn't happen in game books often. Uh, there are companies that put out books that have great story and great mechanics, but they tend to be separated by a big dividing line where, hey, the first half of the book was a good read, the rest of it was good mechanics, get to it when you get to it. Or the mechanics were amazing, read the stories you feel like. It. It's rare that both are incredible, and it is even more rare that it's written with such panache. This was extremely well done. Yep. The Bards killed it on this one. Yep. Killed it. We'll, we'll get into those when we get into chapter two when we start talking about, or I guess later in chapter one, when we start talking about, about, about the character builds themselves, right? Yeah. Right. See, you're calling the introduction chapter one where it's talking about how to use this book. Yeah. But the introduction is long. It's a big section combined with the how to build your domain and chapter four, part of chapter four that really gives you that instruction manual we were talking about. And since horror and mystery can be so interrelated and it does give you a lot of ways to do suspense and, you know, add drama, it gives you so much information in this that we were saying you're missing in Candle Keep. I'm just going to say that maybe Wizards of the Coast made a mistake and should have swapped the order of release. Maybe Ravenloft should have come out first and then Candlekeep. We would have already had the information. Exactly right, yeah. And I, I, I think that that's fair. I think Hashtag call your boys. <laughs> that, that is fair. That the, that the gap that we saw in Candlekeep is definitely it, like the same lessons that you would need in Candlekeep to run a mystery are in here, which is really, really good. Um, I also think that there were some aspects of the, of the introduction that were really, really important and hammered home in a way that really established kind of what Ravenloft is. And I, I had, I have, uh, I, I have three of them written down. And the first one was that they very intentionally now have said that Ravenloft is a part of Shadowfell, right? Now, makes total sense, absolutely, but they'd never actually said that. And, Man, uh, we have been. How long have we been saying that we want a Shadowfell book? We want a Fae Wild Shadowfell book. Blah 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 blah. We've been talking about that. We've been saying ad nauseum. Like, when are they going to do it? When are they going to do it? Well, Six look, months. they just put out their damn Shadowfell book, right? They just put out Ravenloft, and so now, if we look at the UAs that have come out, so we we saw the Gothic lineages UA, we saw the 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 uh, Draconic Origins uh, UA, which we pretty much have said is going to be related to Dragonlance, right? But they also have the Feywild UA. And so now we wonder, now the question is, is this the Shadowfell book? And then what's, what is going to be the Feywild book, right? Where, where's the Feywild book coming? You know, and so I think that, you know, I mean, it wouldn't have necessarily surprised me because of kind of the connection between Shadowfell and, and Feywild, you know, could they have put the Feywild characters in this book? Probably not. They really wouldn't fit in here. They really need to be their own thing, even though uh, Ravenloft does have a lot of Fey influence in some parts of it. Th um, 
we got hags. I'm looking at the carnival. Like, there's a lot of connection to Fae stuff in Ravenloft, but this is clearly a Shadowfell book. Um, it is not the capital T, capital S Shadowfell book, but it is definitely a Shadowfell book. And I think that that might be what we're going to get. The very first note I wrote was how impressed I was with Wizard that they weaved Ravenloft in with the Shadowfell. We've been in this 5e space for years now, and we've talked about things that are Fae and things that are Shadow. Uh, we've had villains and enemies and groups that come out as one thing or another. And the fact that we are now saying this is where it fits in the cosmology of the overall game, giving it a home within the game. Is something that they have not done. It's always been, you go here and you're away from every place else. Maybe you're lucky enough to get back. And while that's cool in and of itself, the fact that it's never been truly placed within the cosmology is huge. The fact that it's here, the fact that it's a part of that realm means any of your Shadowfell creatures, your Gloomstalkers, now have a reason and a way to get oh, here. Oh, man. Yeah. Your, your, planes, your, your, your planes walking rangers now have a way to get here. Your rogue phantoms, yeah. Yeah. How does that ranger who has that those planar abilities and those portal abilities and those abilities to move between realms, how does the myths affect them while they give some intricate, interesting thoughts on how that can play out? You as a storyteller now get to really craft how that looks in your overall game world. You now have an in-your cosmology without breaking your campaign world way to fit in a session or two of Ravenloft or an arc of Ravenloft within your current homebrew campaigns or within your current campaigns. And it can be as simple as your wizard opens a dimensional door to get from point A to point B and Ravenloft decides, nope, you're coming with me. That's it. Yeah. Or you're walking through the woods and a fog rolls in yeah. and the mists claim you. Yep. Or you had a total party kill and your characters wake up in the mists. Yeah, totally. And perhaps they do something in, would they do something in service of the Dark Lords for the ability to go back to the land of the yeah. living? That is all, that is always, like, Liwanika, we had, we played in that Ravenloft game where it was like, we were all so desperate to get out, we would have done anything without realizing that the doing of the anything was what was keeping us there. Shout out to Benito, like again, best campaign ever. Alright, so that was the first thing is that Ravenloft unambiguously part of Shadowfell a fantastic connection the Water. second thing that the second thing that I wrote down is that in other things in 5e we have seen that Wizards of the Coast started with kind of this you should only play good characters bit that kind of devolved over time to where you could play more gray characters play more evil characters that kind of thing they have unambiguously said the realms in Ravenloft are evil places, and the denizens that control them, the dreadlords, the, the dark powers, they are unambiguously evil and should not be played. Like that's not they, to be they have come right out and said that. Not to be redeemed. Irredeemable. Driven by their own sense of ego and control to the point that they don't always even realize that they are in a demiplane that they're stuck on. I was going to say, these guys are so evil that they've been collected by the yeah. dark powers. The way I like to view the dark powers, because they're a big, ambiguous, unknowable thing that controls the mists and the demiplanes of dread. I like to think of them as collecting insects. Oh, yeah. They've got this thing for evil atrocities. And so if you create enough evil and enough atrocity to attract their attention that they wish to collect you, you get collected and they create your own domain of dread designed to continue your It torment. reminds me of the, pri of the prison in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. where only the worst of the worst of the metahumans go. The dark powers have decided you are bad enough that you cannot be in regular population. You get to go over here. I don't think they care about regular population. I think they just say, dude, you're a special kind of evil. Come live in our zoo. We want to watch what you do. And now you run an <laughs> ant farm and you get to continue being evil to people. We're going to give you people to work <laughs> with, right? We'll give you a whole nation if we have to, to keep you happy. And we just want you to keep being you, man. It's like the T-Rex in, in Jurassic Park where they just keep throwing goats at them. Yeah. yeah. And the, the dark powers are sitting around chowing popcorn, watching the show. I'm telling you, this is like evil cable. 
I have this streaming service. I have this vision of a bunch of little uh, cardboard shoeboxes with Strahd, <laughs> Strahd and several other Dark Lords pinned. And the terrarium is their domain. The, the terrarium built is their domain. So you have the Dark Lords just, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, that's great. I, and, yeah. and the Dark Lords are just watching. And Strahd is pinned and he can't do much, but... He's there, but he can somehow reach his powers to the edges of the box, but he can never quite get out of the box. Or, or he might be on some kind of tether or some kind of leash, or so he can never quite get outside. But what I think is truly horrifying about the Domains of Dread, to what Josh said, is that they're so evil they don't even recognize that they're in a prison. But what is the perfect prison? The perfect prison is the one where the prisoner doesn't even know they're in prison. They will never, tr they will never try to escape. They will simply exist and continue to exist. They can't die. They can't end. They can't leave. And they will always, always suffer. And the, and to Glenn's point, the Dark Lords, they don't care about anybody else. They don't care if they're taking the evil away from Feyrun or wherever else somebody was. Because here's the deal. They don't just take the Dark Lord. They will take the whole town that that mother is in. You stopped yourself. That was good. Yeah, it was not too bad. I, I, <laughs> say, I, I saved our editor, who's amazing, did a great job on our Mortal Kombat episode. I saved our editor uh, a great deal of effort on that. Yeah, I really <laughs> did. But it occurs to me, we haven't actually, you know, explained kind of what we're talking about. So if you bought the book, right, and you haven't actually opened it yet, or you're not that familiar with Ravenloft, basic breakdown. We mentioned that it's attached to Shadowfell. And we've kind of covered the fact that it's a prison, but the domains of dread are all are a whole bunch of individual little kingdoms. This isn't a separate world or continent. Pocket dimensions, if you will. Pocket dimensions, exactly. And they all float around in this strange mist run by the dark powers that run this giant zookeeper terrarium experiment that nobody really understands. Um, and each one is designed around a dark lord. But then there's also some that break the rules. You've also got some that are small, like, say, the one that takes place in this book, which is a single building location that actually moves around within other domains. And it could appear in Orca or Barovia, and it could just show or it can show up on a hillside in Hillsfar. And there's just it's basically a giant multiverse and they're they're kind of timeless. So you could have one that's really low tech, one that's a higher tech. You never know what you're going to get. It's like a box of chocolates. I think we're we're not going to be able to do a lot of justice in bringing you into the very corpus nature of what Ravenloft is uh, in this episode. Like we only have an hour and change to go ahead and do this. The point I think that we definitely want to make though is read the book. The, read the book closely. Read the book. It is it, it is really detailed and it goes into uh it goes into a lot of detail in what these realms are and check out episode two next week when we're going to do kind of a point by point on there are like 15 domains that are specified in the book we're going to go point by point through them and talk about them individually so if you're looking to create your own domain or pick a domain to go ahead and play in we're going to talk about them in detail but really honestly uh, get the book, read the book, go to your local GameStop, get the book, read the book, because it, 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 there's a lot in here. There's a lot that, you know, like I can talk about how great horror trinkets are and how great kind of like the, the dark powers that you can inherit as a player are. The book is going to go into much, much more detail than we're going to be able to cover today if we actually expect to finish uh, this episode within the next six hours, so... Josh said, read the book, but uh, like we talk about, get the digital for your digital games in your digital space, but see those local shops, pick up that special cover because that's what's going to keep your local shop and those local play spaces uh, moving. We're starting to get back. So if we want a place to play when we're back, they got to stay open. We got to support them. So buy local. By local. So the third thing that really stood out to me, and this wasn't uh, even explicitly in the first uh, chapter alone, it was kind of throughout the book. Um, and I think that it has to do with the nature of what a Ravenloft campaign is, but there was a big emphasis on session zero, communication to your players, letting them know what the nature of the campaign is going to be. 
and consent. And consent and that that sort of that sort of nature. Like the one thing that I, I pointed out, um, and this is on the very first page of chapter one, uh, when it's getting into character creation, that back to back they had two sections. One about inviting your players into the nightmare. And two, preparing your players to be scared and sort of the dichotomy between those two things. Like I'm inviting you in to go ahead and be scared, but understand you are going to be scared. You are going to be terrified. Anybody, and we're going to get into this in the next episode, but anybody who reads through chapter five with these monsters and isn't freaked out by them. But something I really liked about what they were talking about in that consent and in that session zero piece is they talked about the difference between scaring the character and scaring the player. And it's okay to be a little freaked out as the player, but that the goal shouldn't be to scare the player. Like if I have a fear of spiders, you should not, tar- as a person, you should not target me with my phobia. Yeah. Don't target. You got to work it yeah. out with yeah. what the character is afraid of. And that's where you really got to work with your players. Cause it's as much part of the player to create this atmosphere as it is the storyteller. And it really brings another depth to the role-playing piece because now you're really looking at what is my character afraid of? How would they react to it? And that's a big part of Ravenloft too because you don't want to be targeting the players. You got to, if the players get a little like, oh, that's okay. But you're not trying to drive people from your table. They spell it out and say, no, what is too far? Yeah, so there is in multiple places. I want to say actually... Within chapters one, within chapters two, all throughout chapter four, for sure. I don't know if it's in chapter three. three, I'm not sure about three, but it is definitely within chapter four. It is littered uh, like every so often with uh, get consent. Be sure you understand there's all kinds of paragraphs, uh, parentheses and parenthetical statements that are all about that consent, that understanding what it is really doing is while it's showing players what to be ready for, it is truly putting a lot of responsibility on the storytellers. As a storyteller, your job when running these campaigns, in addition to providing a fun and enjoyable experience, is also on some level to be a bit of a protector for your players. You have to know that even if somebody said, yeah, I'm good with this, or this is my yellow zone, so to speak, You've got to be watching the table. You can't be a distant storyteller. You've got to be cognizant of what's going on at your table. If you start noticing that people are, a not even people, if you start noticing an individual player is starting to feel some kind of way, call for a break. They actually talk about how to call for a break. They talk about take that time, reconvene, figure out what you need to do. Be that person who is taking care of the other people. They uh, they speak to inclusion overall. They actually talk about how to prepare your game space. Is it accessible for all players? Are the distractions out of the way? So we're talking all the things. Accessibility, inclusion, care. Basically, be a good human being to the people at your table. That is now in canon part of D&D. They are fundamentally changing the way role-playing games are being worked, written, and perceived one book at a time. Uh, we commented with Tasha's that we liked the way they started. Uh, we weren't sure if it went far enough, but we understood that they were testing the waters. Now I think they're actually getting it. So I don't think that the D&D is changing role-playing. I think D&D is playing catch-up. I'm going to be honest with you. There are a lot of games already out there that are talking about having hard lines and soft lines, red and yellow zones. And I know I can hear a lot of people roll their eyes when people say stuff like that, because I'll be honest, I did the first couple of times I heard about it, too. But let me tell you, the first time you're running a game like Ravenloft, the first time you're running a game like Ravenloft and you plan a scene, a horror scene, without realizing that it's something that one of your players lived through, you'll realize that it's not just about eye rolling. You don't know what other people have been through. And especially when you're playing with fears, you need to make sure. So do send out the surveys and make them anonymous of what is okay and what isn't okay. So you know what lines you can and can't cross. But D&D is catching up, playing catch up on that. They're definitely not the forerunners. I am not disagreeing with you. I phrased it poorly. You are right. Thanks, man. I know you, I know you, I knew you knew exactly what I said and meant it. You just didn't, I had to. I didn't phrase it that way. 
Wizards of the Coast is catching up with where the hobby should be. Right. We have talked about it. Guests we've had on the show have talked about it that we should have known better. We should have done better. We, as players and storytellers, have been doing better. Now we're getting in writing support from the game companies for what we should have been doing all along. And I think that's a wonderful thing for this hobby and bringing everybody to it. All right. That, and that was a great section on Section Zero in this one. It was hugely expansive and ex- explained a lot. I liked it a lot. Glenn, why don't you tell us what else stood out to you about kind of this introduction uh, introduction in, into Chapter 1? What, what are some things that stood out to you? So the thing that I like the absolute best about the introduction to Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft is that it's a real introduction. It's got the standard how to use this book. And it's got the, and this one gives you more because it's also got information on horror. But when it hits the section where right after that, it starts breaking it down and it starts with the seven secrets of Ravenloft. And there's simple one things at a time to help you start understanding. And it like spoon feeds it to you because the concepts are big. Josh wasn't wrong about how Ravenloft is set up in the dark powers. So it starts out with that. And it just gives you that first bite-sized intro where you read those. And then it hits the land of the mists. And one section of Ravenloft or concept of Ravenloft at a time, it gives you a small synopsis. It's literally an introduction to what it's going to give you more information on later. And that's rarely something you get, I feel, in a role-playing book. I think most of the time in an intro, you get... A bunch of flavor text and... More... Yeah, yeah, some flavor text, how to role-play, maybe a bit of the history of the world. But this is like an actual intro to the processes and the concepts of Ravenloft. I thought it was really cool really well written and it really drug you in like of intros this is probably one of the few that i've read from front to back without skimming or skipping i agree full wholeheartedly just beautiful beautiful way to enter this book and bring everybody back in for those of those of us who've been playing the game and playing in ravenloft like i played in ravenloft for the better part of 13 years or so in, in a previous edition, and I have played through parts of the box set in editions before that, and I played the original module in an, in an edition before even that. It has always improved. That That's the most amazing thing about Ravenloft. Every new edition makes it better. Like, it's one of the very few game products overall that has never had a letdown. Like, it's somehow or another, whoever has owned this product, Whoever has written for this product or this, this this concept has found a way to always make it better without losing one iota of the essence of the old game. They've gotten rid of some of the stuff we should have gotten rid of, but improved the game. They've improved the story, and I love the fact that it keeps getting better. Part of what makes a setting like Ravenloft unique and so, I'm not going to say easy to refresh because I'm confident a huge amount of work went into this, but easier than an existing entire world is when you've got such a a cluster of micro ecologies, effectively, you know, little, their own little environments. There's so much flexibility to change either by adding more, pulling some out. It's a constantly changing environ constantly shifting environs so it's easy to shuffle let's uh let's keep on moving here so the next section in chapter one deals with the lineages in particular and we talked about those at the beginning of the show i don't think we want to dive into them too much because we did an entire episode on it a couple of months ago but i will say that one thing that i really liked about the lineages um were one that the rules uh weren't horribly different from the way that they were in the UA. It made it very easy to go ahead and make sure that our characters were in line with the rules when we put out those character packets. But also, uh, I loved how for each of the particular lineages, they gave concrete examples of people, uh, of, of characters in particular domains who would have fit that bill. So for example, you know, uh, when we're looking at the Reborn, they list three domains where Reborn happen and how they happen in that domain. It's one or two sentences. It's really nothing. But if, you know, if you like one of those, then you can say, oh, okay, well, I want to look into Lamordia. Oh, I've got five pages of lore on Lamordia at the back. Okay, great. Now I can dive into that, into that particular domain. And so I thought that was a really, a really nice feature of these. Small and kind of, you know, almost innocuous, but yeah, hugely helpful to give you that bit of tie into the Ravenloft world for each of them. 
when I was looking at the lineages, the thing that struck me was that they came through almost the way that they were written originally. Yeah. Very few changes, yeah. Uh, except, f- yeah, the Reborn's ability for recalling skills got changed to instead being a general bonus, I which like I like better. Absolutely, yeah. I think that was actually one of our, that was part of our feedback, actually, <laughs> if I remember correctly from the episode. Yeah, they listened to us. I got to say that I, I don't like that they didn't add any prices for some of these things. They did with the dark gifts, like, and we'll get to those in a minute, but the the dark gifts are wicked cool. I like their addition a lot, but something like the penalties set up with the dark gifts, I think should be attached to an ability still, like the damp fears self-heal bite. You know, if he's if it says he's going to possibly succumb to the darkness, so it's up to us storytellers to write that part in, but because if your player's using this bite attack all the time, in theory, that should start that should be costing him pieces of They're his mortal soul. They're giving you point A and point B. You've got to build the bridge. Yeah. Uh, a technique that was given to me by a fantastic storyteller in a Ravenloft campaign was supply gifts. And in the campaign we w- rolled in, and this was 3.5 days, if you got a third or a fourth gift, and I can't remember the exact number, you basically lost your character because you were no longer a hero. You became more bestial, you became more ever, more whatever. And I believe, if I recall correctly, he had visible signs that you were becoming more and more gifted. Like what, a gift of any kind had a visible yeah, result. Your eyes would start to glow or, or you'd grow horns. Just, or, you, yeah. Something would happen so people would know you were marked. Okay. And I, I, I always I loved it. that. And I guarantee you anything I would do with Ravenloft, that would continue. And, and, and interestingly enough, I would say people, if they come into and then leave the, the Domains of Dread, nobody outside the Domains of Dread may recognize that except for somebody who has ever been in. That makes for great role play, by the way. Yep. Uh, you're at a bar, you're somewhere in Waterdeep, and all of a sudden one person on there recognizes that you were touched uh, by, the, by the Dark Lord. Yep. Yep. That's the, a cool scene. The crazy old sailor on the dock who keeps talking in weird riddles, you know, because and he's seen things. Like, he sees you come in with your eyes glowing. He's like, ah, you know it too. Yeah, oh, totally. Yeah. 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 Similarly, you're in the Domains of Dread, and you're at the carnival, and all of a sudden the mime actually stops and backs away from from you because he knows you're touched. That's a great scene. There's all kinds of ways to play these things. So... Uh, storytellers read these sections very well and figure that out uh, so that you know the ways to play some of these cool things. And if there's a gap, and I don't consider it a big gap, it's something we notice, but we already know how we're going to fix it. So uh, just recognize that and go for it. Uh, but one of the things I loved about the, the lineages that I don't recall if they were in the, in the original UA was the ancestral lineage or legacy piece. I don't recall that being in the UA. It may have been there and I didn't catch it, but where it's, you're basically, if you're one of these things you're, and you are replacing what you were, so you become a Domphir from something else, you have the opportunity to maintain that which you had, or you can just choose all new. It, it, I it think that was in the original, things. yeah. I think that that was in the original. Maybe. I, Maybe. I, don't, I don't recall it being called... There was something, something that spoke to I don't it, remember I, the exact wording, but there was something. I don't recall it being it. called out like this. Uh, audience, what? It was highlighted more in this, In this, absolutely. It was more of a side yeah, comment. Let us know, other. audience. Let us know if I totally missed it originally, uh, but it's certainly here now, and that's great to play with. And it, 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 it's, kind of, it's kind of akin to in, in third edition where um, particularly in Ravenloft, when you got into the Ravenloft thing, like, you know, if you were a Domfear or a vampire or a werewolf or any of these things, you had your base character and then a template that sat on top of it with the with the statistics for that type of character. And so it's more akin to that. And I think that that was in the original, but you know, I, I could be mistaken. That might have just been the way we interpreted it too. Like, or maybe we asked for that. But I seem to remember that being in there. So, Lewanika, you talked about, the, or, or one of you guys talked about it, but the the cool thing that uh, that is such a strong Ravenloft uh, characteristic and is covered really, really well in this chapter are the concept of the dark gifts. Um, um, and how, uh, you know, you mentioned that you wish that they were kind of more integral to the to the lineages. Pulling them out as their own thing, I think, is fine because it gives the ability for for 
characters who are not of those lineages to get them to. And so I think that's why they kind of separated them out into their own thing. Um, so if I'm just a regular right. elf or a regular human or a regular dwarf or whatever, um, I can get dark gifts too. I don't have to be a Domphir or a Reborn or a Hexblood, you know, to get the dark gifts. But yeah, the dark gifts basically when, when the powers that make Ravenloft start talking to your character and start trying to drive your character into the evil Dark gifts are the beginning of the road to becoming a dread lord. I mean, that's how yeah. the progression runs. The dread lords can do them too. Like if you strike a deal with them, they can Absolutely, offer you dark yeah. gifts as well. But basically, you have to agree to them. So yeah. this is so a choice. Josh, this is where this is the part of the podcast where I disagree with you. I don't think it's the dark lords talking to your character. I don't think it's the dread lords talking to your character. I think it's when the soul of your character starts talking to the dread lords and the dark lords. When your soul answers the call is when you get a dark gift. Interesting. I like it. You're saying when Ravenloft twists yeah. you enough. I think they made a great point. Ravenloft and the Dark Lords do not trick or convince somebody to be evil. They set the stage and evil people show who they truly are. They make the choice. So that's why I say it's when your soul talks back. And I actually picked one specific gift because of all of them, I loved this the most. And interestingly enough, I think it's probably the one that has the most mechanical benefit in in various pillars of the game, but it is so cool. And that's death touch. It just, you can focus your deadly touch against your foes as an action, make an unarmed strike on a hit. Your target takes all this necrotic damage and you increase this damage by a d10 when you reach fifth level it's 1d10 uh to start with it's d10 when you reach fifth level 2d10 at 11th level i'm sorry let me try 2D10 that again at five 3d10 at, at 11 five. yeah and at 17th it becomes 40 10 we have been talking for months about improper scaling this scales properly this is the best scaled power feature thing in the damn game that I've seen yet. And the fact that it's attached to a dark gift makes it even better. There's some other things that happen with your characters and dark gifts, like so many things that are so evocative. And uh, obviously, we're in Ravenloft. You know things are going to be necrotic. I, I thought the I thought the one about the Watchers was particularly great too. About how you just have something that they're not familiars. They're not. They don't really give you any mechanical benefits. I mean, there's some, but but basically, like there's that person walking down the street and he's just always covered in fleas, or uh, or you know, like rats walk around him. Or I, I love I love the one with the different environments where like you know every time he dives into the ocean, crabs follow him. You know, like that kind of thing. Like, oh, it, it's it's just creepy. This book's just creepy, okay? Yeah, that power, that power I called out. I have that highlighted in a different note. I thought it was creepy, and I will never look at Pigpen and oh, Peanuts God, yeah, the same yeah. way ever again. Do not let him near my single leaf Christmas tree. I don't want him there. I actually, I wrote this down and I forgot to mention it earlier. I had this thought about the movie The Truman Show being a movie about a dread realm and Truman being the dread lord. Ooh. Right, that's kind of awesome. Yeah, that is actually totally, very awesome. Totally different spin on a on a on a dreadlord and everything like that. Because you know, remember, at the end of the movie, he leaves. It's like, oh god, where's where's the dreadlord going? It's kind of like the lich there that uh, that disappeared. Uh, uh, Strahd's nemesis there, the the lich that left his dread has left his realm. Basically, his realm was like, we don't know what to do. You know, yeah. I think uh, the dark gifts from stem to stern. The dark mm. gifts were great, and Lewinika, you my nailed, favorite. Yeah, you nailed why is that the scaling in them is fantastic. This is one thing. Let let us let us be honest. In all of our uh, episodes about subclasses, in all of our episodes about any any deep rules dive, we keep going back to that point that scaling, 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 scaling that they haven't got it right. Over and over in this book, they got the scaling right. We're going to talk about the, the about the uh, the new subclasses in a second. I think that that's another example where they got the scaling exactly right. And and 
I'm not sure if they're just putting more thought into it or or what. I mean, I, you know, we would love to go ahead and take credit for this because we've been talking about it for so long, but really, we can't really assume that they have been listening to us on this. However, they are doing the things that we have said that they should be doing. So, so they must be listening must to be us. Listening I think that's exactly. a logical yeah. conclusion. Here's the deal. If they're not listening to us, they're listening to somebody who is listening to us. Exactly. Yep. Nothing for nothing. We are not the first people who've been saying it, but we've only been saying it on air for six months. And all of a sudden, it's happening. <laughs> all of the dark gifts have a downside and it's a playable downside oh, yeah. yeah and it's a reasonable downside for most of them i mean my favorite is the the mist walker where you effectively just become so attuned to the mists that you gain certain abilities but the price is that the mists don't like that and you can no longer stay in one place for too long or basically you'll start to die so you've got misty step you get as a spell that you can use requiring no spell slot you can use it once. Okay, once per rest. That's still really cool. And Mist Traveler, you can get from one place to another in the mist. You can travel through the mist. But you get poisoned roots. When you finish a long rest, the world around you in a 10-mile radius becomes a siphon that will eventually leach away your vitality. <sighs> you can remain in the area safely for a number, number of weeks equal to your constitution modifier. Minimum of one. Thereafter, each time you finish a long rest, you can gain a level of exhaustion if you fail your save which could eventually kill you. So it makes you a permanent nomad. You know, you, you become okay with the mists to the point that you can't, but you have to keep moving. How many, and that's a trope that we have seen in movies before um, about how, you know, you've got, you've got somebody who is in a particular area and just being in that area seems to be killing him. Um, I'm trying, there's one in particular that I've seen recently and I can't put my finger on it, but like we've seen that, that kind of trope before. And it's a fabulous trope. Like that's, you know, in um, Hancock, they don't do it as a place. They do it as the two people. When they're together yeah. and stay yes. together, they become yes. mortal and vulnerable oh. again. But when they get away from each other, their power returns. Such mm. an underrated film. I loved that film. I really did. Yeah, my, I got both my kids to watch it when they were I was in Wisconsin. Let's dive into the subclasses a little bit here, because again, I think that the subclasses, again, were an excellent addition to this book. Um, and we talked a little bit about scaling earlier. I want to talk about the spirit tales power that goes along with the Bard subclass College of Spirits. Um, they did something very, very smart, and that was they tied this power to their bardic inspiration die which already increases in in die type as the bard goes up in levels and if you look so it starts off as a d6 and the the powers that are one through six on that scale are are pretty self they're pretty good like third level fourth level powers right they're 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 decent they're nothing nothing game breaking right well and then when you go up to see what powers are level seven and eight they're a little bit stronger than the ones that are one through six so you might still only get get the power of one through six, but at least now you're rolling a D eight. So you can get the seven or eight level power to the point that, you know, uh, if you look at like power number 10, tail of the dragon, this is the one that really kind of stood out to me that, you know, target spews fire from mouth and a 30 foot cone, right? That's the kind of thing. That's the kind of leveling that we're talking about. They're tying it to an, yeah. it, to an existing game mechanic. That was super clever. Very clever. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Yep. And and beyond the mechanical cleverness and the College of Spirits Bards was just beautifully written. I love the fact that their main mechanic, these tales from beyond the spirit, these spirit tales were written narratively. It's one of the first times we've seen a bard mechanic that gives you the flavor. I have the benefit of running a table in which the bard in that game is Glenn. And Glenn takes the time to put... I'm a terrible bard. <laughs> he says that. But he takes the time to put story and flourish to his bardic deeds. Like, he just takes the time to do that. This college provides that information. Glenn has made the point many times that not every player is good at or feels comfortable with... Not everybody's with, an improv artist. ...with the improv. They actually have the mechanics written in a way that if you weren't comfortable with the improv, you could literally read the mechanic minus the numbers and it would play as a role played thing that your character would say. And I think that's brilliant. It's just written the way it needs to. All right. So College of Spirits, 
an A plus subclass, and I think seriously going to be in contention for one of the highest ranked subclasses when we get to our Bard episode. I'm going to call it right now, unless I find something that surprises me, this is already my favorite. Spoiler we always find alert. something that surprises us, and so that's why I'm that's why I'm at least hedging my bet a little bit, to go ahead and say. so. Um, well, let's see, get and in- I do like it, but I'm not going to, I have read all the Bard subclasses, and I'm not ready to jump up and say this one's going to be my favorite already, but I do like it. it is, it's very good. Let's get into the other subclass in the book, and this is... I'm ashamed to admit that. I don't even like bards. <laughs> this is the undead patron for Warlock. I'm just going to... I'm going to mute you guys out, so you can keep talking all you want. Um, uh, and I... There are so, there are a lot of really fun things about uh, about this patron. The, two things in particular that I, that I highlighted. Um, one of them is... The concept of a mummy patron is amazing. That's just <laughs> flat out amazing. That's just fun. Like, I'm thinking, like, the mummy movie, like, oh, goodness. Like, you know, you think about, um, uh, you think about when, not Anaxuna Moon, um, the, the, the actual mummy that comes back. I mean, he was he making him a warlock is easy, um, especially when you start thinking about some of the, like the dark gifts where it's like he's got like this like swarm of scarabs that goes around with him all the time. Thank you. Yeah. Imhotep. Yeah. Imhotep. Imhotep. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, making him a mummy patron warlock uh, is a really easy build, I think, in that regard, especially in, in if you put it in the kind of this desert Ravenloft realm. I actually like the idea of the the uh, porter who is running through the various deities who then finally uh, pulls out <laughs> hey, the star Benny. Benny and he finally takes out the star David and Imhotep is like, you speak the slave tongue? And then he goes into it. Like, I like... Yeah, he just struck his pact right there. He is the warlock. I agree. I like him being the warlock better because he comes back... If he had come back in the mummy two or three or four that's awesome in fact if i ever run a, a game that goes through there that exact character and Imhotep from that exact movie are going to be there because they were awesome the other thing that i highlighted in this in this subclass or in this patron path uh, was the uh, the 14th level ability, which I think is remarkably strong from a mechanical point of view. And that's the the um, uh, the spirit projection ability, which for which allows the warlock uh, from a uh, to concentrate and be in that concentration for an hour, project his spirit someplace else. That part of it is not super that that's not super unusual, right? Uh, warlocks and wizards can all do that, right? The thing that makes this one unique is that at the end of the at the end of his his ritual or or however you want to call it, when he's done projecting his spirit, he can choose which location his body appears at. Does it stay at its original location or does it go wherever his spirit went? So, you know, right. we, uh, that's wicked cool. Lee Winika and I were talking earlier about the, um, you know, the, the, uh, the, the tabaxi monk warlock who gets this ability at warlock level 14. So he can take six levels of monk, uh, and 14 levels of warlock, uh, and have a movement speed of like what 95 feet around or something like that, who basically, you know, um, his spirit can then just like travel like six miles away, be wherever he wants. And then boom, all of a sudden his physical form appears there. You know, I think, I think that that is one of those things that is, uh, is remarkably cool. Um, and even just from like, from a flavor point of view, like you're, you're in the mansion, which is the, uh, the realm of this particular warlock. And, uh, and you're like looking through and you're looking through the cabinets. And then all of a sudden he appears behind you and says, you're looking through my things, right? You know, uh, like, Oh, just creepy. It's a creepy feature. And it is so well done. It's so well written in this in this book. I I agree, but for for my money, the necrotic husk, the tenth. Oh God, that's just a disgusting name. Yeah, that is the one I like. One, I loved it too. The phrase is great, but look, nothing for nothing. Where else can you do two D ten plus your level? So we're two D ten plus ten when you get the ability necrotic damage to every friggin' body in a 30-foot radius. I felt like the clerics had, had uh, when we talked about the cleric subclasses, 
uh, which that episode hasn't come out yet, so spoiler alert. But there was some of the, the some of the um, was it the light cleric that had that ra- the radiant ability to go ahead and do basically the same thing. Yeah, they have a thirty and, foot uh, self centered AOE as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so it's it's taken from that. Yeah, it's a necrotic fireball centered Look, on yourself. Oh yeah, it's death blossom. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's sexy. Like don't get me wrong. Yeah. Oh man, never has death yeah. worn itself so pretty. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. that's, that's awesome. Yep. That's awesome. Both of these subclasses are strong, which is saying something, because usually not all of the subclasses are that strong. Yep. And I would say, interestingly enough, they are subclasses that have some pretty strong things already. I think there are a couple, there's at least one or two colleges, uh, bard colleges that I think are really good. Uh, this measures up nicely, I think better, on face value. We'll find out later. The, as a, the Warlock, which is easily a class that has some of the strongest subclasses in general, this measures up. This is yet, I, I've already played at least one Warlock. Uh, this guy just got in the queue. Without a doubt, this subclass is in the queue. So, Luanika, I know background is a big thing that you talk about a lot. Uh, was there anything in the background section of the book here that stood out to you? First of all, it was solid. The info they provided, the options they provided were perfect for the genre. They allow you to swap a few things here or there that I think will work well with this genre. What I really liked is beyond the actual background and background features, they gave a series of characteristics that are specific to this realm that will allow you to take whatever class, whatever class, whatever subclass, Whatever genre, whatever background you take, you can now look at these uh, characteristics, ideals, bonds, flaws, etc., and choose things that are really that will really bring your character into the horror element. I would invite current storytellers, even if you're not running Ravenloft, to take a look at this section and make sure these are choices or at least information that's available to your players, because some of these are just awesome in general. Ravenloft be damned. They're just really good characteristics, bonds and flaws. I actually like some of these bonds and flaws better than the ones that have been in the game previously. Totally agree. I, I feel like it was a nice counterpoint to what Tasha's were starting to do with custom lineage. Now it's starting to be like, here are some, here's a way to craft a horror themed custom background on some level. Uh, and I think that that was really right. well done also. Yeah, that's kind of what this is. It's a choose-your-own background kind of section where you pick... Take any number of these things, add them to what you already do. Uh, and nothing for nothing, shout out for the mon- for the Monster Hunter uh, Hunter's Pack. If you don't buy the whole book and you're using D&D Beyond, at least go in and buy the equipment off of D&D Beyond <laughs> so you can add this to your current characters. Because yeah. there are very few characters that I would not like this pack with. I think this rivals the Explorer's Pack in general. I actually like this better. Well, since you opened that portal, let's talk about kind of the last bit of chapter one. Uh, and again, you know, so I, when I'm going through the book for the first time, I have like all these multicolored sticky notes, right? And I I, uh, I use uh, uh, blue things for informational and I use green things for things that I love and orange things for things I really love and red for things that I need, that, I'm not, that I don't like so much or that I'm concerned about. Um, there's only two red things and they're way at the end of the book. This is a page that I've got more orange than book on these two pages because I loved so many of these horror trinkets. And again, that is such a Ravenloft flavor thing. It's the it's the amulet passed down from great, great grandfather. And you don't even know what the amulet is anymore, but it's got these weird writing on it and this weird gemstone in it. And you don't even know what it is, you know, that kind of thing a fabulous addition to because this helps make story right like if I was running a Ravenloft campaign every single character in here would have a horror trinket you guys have seen like I've done things like this in the Candlekeep AP where all of you had to go ahead and have a book that you presented to the to the library to get in that was done really to go ahead and get you guys inside the minds of your own character like what would your character have been bringing to the to the library what would your character have thought was important these horror trinkets do exactly the same thing i think these profiles are brilliant i could go on and on i could just read them 
and it would be, uh, in my opinion, a pretty cool podcast just by reading all of them. I'm going to pick out a couple that I thought were just amazing. A winter coat stolen from a dying soldier. Child's tea set stained with blood. A bottle of uh, invisible ink that can only be read at sunset. You know, these are these are just awesome, evocative kinds of yep. little things. A, that a glass eye with a worm in it. That was yeah, my favorite. Uh, a jar of pickled ghouls' tongues. You know, depending on what it is. Now, as a player, you got to sell me on why the hell I'm still carrying this around. Why would I still be carrying a bloody child's tea set? And there's plenty of story there. That's that's the next piece. Why? Right. Why do you have it? If it's important enough that you're still carrying it. So I looked at these trinkets in two ways. One, things for your characters to carry, right? If I'm a player and I'm building a character, I'm not rolling on this table unless that's the parameters of the game set out in session zero. I would find something that I think matches my character or that would be cool or that sparks some story in my head. So I may not pick the one you mentioned. However, like I can't envision a character that would have a jar of pickled ghoul's tongues. I would populate that haunted house in that domain of dread with many of these items. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you how know, many times have if, you seen the, you, the room with, walk, the, ugh, yeah, with the jars? You, and you walk up to the house, and in the back, the back, through the backyard, you come out of the woods, and there's a child's playscape. There's a little sandbox and a little picnic table, and there's a, tea, a child's teacup with a blood stain on it. You walk into the house, and in the first cabinet, there's a jar of pickled ghoul's tongues. This is the horror house I'm building, and I'm building it simply by selecting items off of this list. So not everything is an item I'm going to give to a player character necessarily, but everything's an item I'm likely to use at some point. When I when we talk about this book giving us tools, I have never been the person who was particularly good at building horror, but I can literally take little things from every section, and that's just what we've talked about so far. And in my head, I'm well on the way to creating that horror story, that horror adventure that I'm talking about. All that to go ahead and say that chapter one and the introduction of this book, this book starts really, really strong. Uh, and it really, it just continues all the way through. Um, there's a lot of great stuff about building your characters and really the beginning processes of beginning a Ravenloft campaign for you as a player. Ch Glenn, you called it at the beginning of the episode. Chapter one is all about players. It's all about how a player mm -hmm. gets into the world. In our next episode, we're going to get more into the storyteller side of things. So we're going to continue talking about how to build your own domains. And then uh, we're going to start talking about uh, kind of the actual playthrough itself of, uh, of chapter four here. So last words on chapter one. Lee, how about, how about why don't you go last words on, on chapter one and, and, uh, and the beginning of the book? Again, this is a chapter that invites you into the domains of dread. It invites you in a little at a time. It gives you a little bit to say, here's where you are. It gives you a little bit more to say, understand a little what's going on here. It gives you a little bit more to say, it's building. We're giving you more. And then a little bit, uh, uh, as at each piece, as each paragraph unfolds, you understand more and more and more. By the time you're done with this first chapter, you have a real solid grasp of what you're getting into. And I can't wait till we hit the next chapters. Oh, that's when it gets really, really deep. We've only plumbed the darkness. It's only twilight. It's only getting dark. The mist is rising. The chill is in the air, and the house awaits at the top of the hill. Then I'll creep you on us there, Luanika. That's all right. So <laughs> you got a little bit of the taste of horror from Lee. Uh, for final and very nice, by the way, I like the drama. Bravo, bravo. Uh, yeah. for, for my final thoughts as, on... Uh, as the black this cat crossed... As the black cat jumps in front of you, yeah. <laughs> yes. As the black cat crossed my path, literally, and my arm. Ravenloft. It's awesome. You want to play there. We're going to help kind of take you there. But my final thoughts on the book. This is kind of a must-read for storytellers, right? For players out there who are thinking, man, it's a $50 book. You know, I want to support my local shop, but if you're saying that only the first chapter is for players, that doesn't mean you can't get more out of it. You could still enjoy it. But 
you can also get into a game with somebody who is playing Ravenloft to get access to that first chapter or two to decide. Um, like any of my players, I bought the book on D&D Beyond. If you're on one of my campaigns already, you can go in and peruse. You don't have to have bought it yet. You can go in and go through it that way, too. You don't want to make that investment just to read the player the player sections, D&D Beyond, and being in a game with a, a storyteller who is running Ravenloft is a great way to get that access without winding up with the bulk of the book being about all the individual domains of dread that you don't want to spoil for yourself because you're going to play in them. Um, but aside from that, it's going to be a lot of fun. Everybody's just got to, you know, remember we're all in it together. Everybody's responsible for keeping the game both fun and spooky. Now it's also your job to help keep it spooky. All right. Well, thank you very much everybody for listening. Uh, we're going to have a ton of fun with this book. We can't wait to go ahead and dive into the rest of it and to talk more about it with you. Hope that you enjoyed this uh, this bit on, on chapter one, and we will see you next week when we start talking about chapter two. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you for joining us. This has been Tabletop Journeys. We would love to hear your feedback on our show today. You can join us at www.ttjourneys.com where you can subscribe to the blog to leave comments and see all the content that we publish beyond the podcast. And make sure you join our growing online community. You can follow us on Twitter at TT Journeys and join us on Facebook just by searching Tabletop Journeys there. You can also reach us by email at podcast at ttjourneys.com. And if you want to catch early access to our episodes and some of the other benefits we have coming down the pipeline, you can also support our production at patreon.com slash ttjourneys. If you're listening to us on Stitcher, iTunes, Podchaser, Spotify, Audible, or any other podcast platform, we would really appreciate if you would like and subscribe to the podcast. Full episodes come out every week on Saturdays and every Wednesdays. We'll feature our SideQuest series where we talk about pretty much anything tabletop-oriented. Thank you all so much for listening and for being a part of our growing community. And in the words of another traveler on our path, we bid you shade and sweet water.